0: Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast.
1: On the program tonight, the latest on the coronavirus. We'll hear from an infectious disease specialist and from our panel of MPs on how the Canadian government is handling the crisis. Donald Trump is set to survive his impeachment trial with a majority of the U.S. Senate ready to acquit him. So what was the political cost and where do U.S. politics go from here? Brexit is now a reality but it's not over. We'll look at what comes next for Britain as it faces a year of negotiations with Europe. And our journalist panel will be in to discuss the week in federal politics and the latest on the conservative leadership race. Well we start tonight with what has been very much on many Canadians' minds, the coronavirus outbreak. So far, the official worldwide tally of those infected is approaching 10,000, with at least 214 deaths, all of them in China. Here in Canada, a fourth case of infection was confirmed on Friday in London, Ontario. However, Canadian authorities stress that Canada is still at low risk. The World Health Organization, though yesterday, declared a global emergency out of concerns of contagion. And the Canadian government is still struggling with arrangements to try to bring back approximately 200 Canadians who want to be returned to Canada from the affected region in China. Today, Prime Minister Trudeau was asked about the latest developments.
2: First of all, uh, Canada has unfortunately uh, very... uh, recent experiences with a a virus of this type, our experience with SARS in 2003, uh, meant that we created protocols and a system that is uh, handling uh, the concerns around this threat uh, very, very well. Uh, That's why the threat to Canadians remains low here in Canada. We are of course uh, engaging with the World Health Organization. Our chief medical officer, Dr. Tam, uh, is actually an expert who is called upon by the World Health Organization for her insights. on how to handle things. So Canada is very present in helping out the international community. Uh, We will continue to work with the international community to ensure uh, that uh, the threats remain low uh, across Canada and indeed uh, as much as we can around the world. Uh, We are engaged uh, with Chinese authorities around uh, repatriating Canadians who are uh, in China and uh, concerned for their safety. Uh, It is a, a, a deliberate process in which we are engaged responsibly. and We will have more to say on that in the
1: coming days. Meanwhile, in the daily question period in the House of Commons, MPs still had questions for the government about his handling of the coronavirus situation.
3: Madam Speaker, what's the plan? Canadians need more information. Once Canadians in China safely return to Canada, what is the protocol in place to protect Canadians
1: at home? Will returners be mandated to remain in quarantine? If yes, for how long? The government has indicated that there will be an enhanced screening process. What does this screening process look like? And when will the government contact all of those who are on impacted flights for the confirmed cases already? Canadians need reassurance. Canadians
2: need answers today. What's the plan?
3: The Honourable Minister of Health. Well, thank you, Madam Speaker. And in talking about uh, misinformation, it's difficult uh, to contain spread of misinformation if we're conflating two separate issues. Uh, the member opposite has asked about the number of contacts that were uh, beside the, p- the patient in Toronto who has since recovered. Uh, all of those people sitting within two metres have been contacted and confirmed as not having the coronavirus. So that piece is complete. In terms of returning uh, people from China, I will note that China will not allow people who are ill to travel and will have a very comprehensive screening process in partnership with Canadian uh, prof- healthcare care professionals that will be on the ground. We'll continue to
1: update as we go. Well, to get an expert point of view on the latest developments on the novel coronavirus, we're joined now by Dr. Susie Hoda. She's an infectious disease specialist and an associate professor at the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. Dr. Hoda, first of all, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Can I get your reaction when you heard the announcement yesterday from the World Health Organization uh, that they decided to finally declare this a global emergency? Um, What was your reaction to that?
4: Uh, You know, I think that we were all kind of anticipating that that was uh, the reason for reconvening the emergency committee. And certainly we've seen since the first meeting and now a progression towards more countries having cases, some more cases of human-to-human transmission outside of China as well, and quite an explosion of the number of reported cases within China. Um, So those were all reasons, I think, to, to reconsider that initial decision. And uh, and try and get some more coordination of international um,
3: activities.
1: How worrisome is it that the virus is spread to some countries? And this was the justification for the WO WHO changing its opinion. How worrisome is it when you see the spread to some countries with less developed healthcare systems uh, uh, than Canada?
4: That's definitely a concern, and I think that that was top of mind with the WHO's decision as well. Um, you know, to try and we have an opportunity right now to control things as it gets imported uh, into different areas. But of course, that relies upon having strong public health infrastructure to actually follow up on cases and try to put measures in place to limit the contact with others um, and follow those other contacts very closely. So. Uh, You know, if you don't have that capacity, you really lose your ability to have containment within your area.
1: Can we go over some of the issues, because we have you and you are an expert in infectious disease, can we go over some of the issues that people, Canadians are still bringing up? The average Canadian is still asking questions, even although these have been asked many times over the past few weeks. But the question keeps coming up still about screening at airports, and people continue to ask, why not thermal screening? They see images of the U.S., Japan, the U.K., Thailand, other countries that are doing thermal screening. Walk us through the rationale that Canada has used to not use those thermal screening devices.
4: Right, so screening in airports have limitations and I, I've discussed this in the past. The major problem is in these kinds of infections where there is an incubation period, which means time between when you become infected and when you develop your symptoms and show signs of those infection. that infection, it, there's a lag there and here it's up to 14 days with this virus. So even if you're screening people with questions or thermal testing, like checking to see if they have a fever, uh, you, you may not pick up people who are infected and then will later develop symptoms once they've entered into a different country. So we know that's a shortcoming of this kind of a, a strategy. If you're able to pick up a few people, then that's great, but it's not gonna be the complete safeguard. Um, so that's one of the issues. And so, you know, actually starting measuring people's temperatures takes a lot of resources and it will back things up within the airport. So have other impacts. And our experience with SARS in uh, 2003, 2002, 2003, was after having implemented that kind of measure, we were still not picking up cases. So, you know, I think that that was the rationale uh, behind uh, Canada's decision to not go that route with the screening
1: okay let's talk about quarantine the minister of health was asked again today in the house of commons uh... with regards to canadians who are going to be flown back from the affected area um, we're anticipating their arrival now uh... she was asked again should canadians be quarantined we've seen the americans are going to quarantine their people coming off that jumbo jet for about three or four days in california the australians are saying fourteen days on christmas island other nations are quarantining people who've come from the hot zone if they Um, what's the rationale should canada be thinking about quarantining people
4: there's a whole range of ways that you can deal with this and you know we've seen strict quarantine um, and the uh, approach of the australians where they're actually isolating this group of people on an island and keeping them away from the general public for the entire 14 days of the incubation period that's one end of the spectrum and then you know in the u.s. it's kind of a bit of a middle ground where it's a voluntary holding for three days, and then they're going back to their their usual community, um, and they are able to be monitored by public health. Our uh, usual approach in Canada to monitoring contacts of somebody with an infectious to communicable disease like this is to have them self-isolate at home and um, follow up for symptoms over the period of time of observation, the 14 days we're talking about here. That's how we would approach this kind of thing if it was just regular contact management. Um, and, but it's a decision that has to be made um, at the public health agency at Canada level. Taking all the different sort of resource requirements into, um, into consideration, what we know about the transmission of the virus and whether it's worthwhile to do that, if it's necessary to quarantine people away from others, um, or if they can safely be isolated at home.
1: Okay, well, the other question is, we've been discussing quarantine, isolation and all that. Uh, it's a lot simpler, as you've been describing, if there's a the presumption that someone's not contagious until they've developed symptoms. And that symptom period can be up to 14 days. What do we know, though? I and mean, this once has been suggested. This really throws a joker into the pack. What do we know if people can transmit the disease or the virus uh, when they're asymptomatic? Uh, how much more complicated does that make things? And what do we know about asymptomatic transmission?
4: That's, that's an excellent question. And this is probably the top question right now for for everybody to try and understand. So if people are able to transmit to other people before they develop symptoms, then that changes everything. Your ability to contain things changes um, because really, how are they gonna know and what's gonna declare the fact that they're infected? It's, it's very difficult to manage that situation. But I do wanna put a caveat here. I think we, we shouldn't jump ahead. We don't yeah. really know what the situation is with this current virus. What we've seen is some instances that suggest that there has been transmission from one person who is infected, but not yet showing clear signs of infection to others. Um, But again, sometimes, I think we've all had this experience, you start coming down with a cold or a flu, and it takes you a while to even recognize that you're getting symptoms. So that needs to be clarified. Was it truly asymptomatic transmission in that case, or was it just you know, hard to identify symptoms and difficult to recall when you're questioned later. So that's one thing. The other thing that's really important is this isn't really a new phenomenon. We actually see this with other respiratory viruses, including the flu. The flu is that yeah, people, yeah. Right. People may have detectable virus in their bodies um, prior to the, when they actually declare symptoms or find symptoms, and that's usually within the 24 hours, close to that time. It's not like you know, it's days and days day, day out, but close to when they develop symptoms. That said, it doesn't seem to really impact on our usual control measures within hospitals to try and prevent transmission or a way of dealing with this on a community level um, in terms of being able to manage based upon symptom. If we don't use that as when we kind of trigger our actions, as on a population level or a larger scale, it seems to still be the most important approach to take. So I think we just have to keep it in mind and um, consider that it's possible that people may be able to transmit. But let's see how often that's happening and understand it better before we would change any of our protocols.
1: Um, as uh, I know, And I know um, everyone in public health and everyone in a position of public responsibility is saying in Canada the risk is still low. It's considered low, but as a public health uh, specialist, as an infectious disease specialist, what keeps you up at night when you watch this unfolding virus uh, and the way it's going? What, what has a potential to keep you awake?
4: Well, the things that worry us um, is we're constantly looking at what the clinical characteristics are. So, of course, the severity of an illness is really, really key here. Um, so, right now, what we know is it looks like about two to three percent of people who are presenting to hospital and being diagnosed with this illness are dying. So not not in the range of what we saw with SARS, which was 10 to 11 percent, certainly not in the range of what we see with the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome or MERS, which is another coronavirus, which is more like 35 percent in that yeah. range of people who die when they're diagnosed with it. So mortality is lower than those kinds of coronaviruses. And in fact, it might even be lower than because likely there are a lot of people who are mildly infected and we're just not detecting that. Um, so, But we want to make sure that those characteristics don't change. These viruses can mutate over time. Can they become more, more virulent? But we're, that's the whole purpose of having transparency and reporting what's going on and sharing that information with the community so we, we know how to react. Um, and then the other thing that keeps me up, I have to say the, the thing that really keeps me up is the public's response to all this and, and trying to make sure that there's something I can do to try and help people understand the situation better so they don't panic. Because panic leads to unnecessary anxiety in people, we know, but also it can paralyze the system and it can uh, divert resources and attention away from the important things and, and just, you know, get people consumed in fear. So that, that's really one of my focuses.
1: Okay, well, Dr. Hoda, I want to thank you very much for taking the time and we will no doubt keep in contact. And thanks very much for your time and for your advice. You're welcome. Well, joining me now to look at this first week back of Parliament are three MPs from the different parties. Arif Arani is a Liberal MP for the Toronto Riding of Parkdale High Park. He's a Parliamentary Secretary to the Justice Minister. Randy Holback is a Conservative MP for the Saskatchewan Riding of Prince Albert and his party's international trade critic. And Daniel Blakey is the NDP member for the Winnipeg Riding of Elmwood Transcola and he's also his party's international trade critic. All three of you, welcome back and thanks for taking the time.
5: Glad Good to be here, be here Martin.
1: Uh, Okay, let's start with, I mean, obviously what has been garnering so much attention and and Canadians have been quite concerned about is the coronavirus and the government's handling of the whole situation. (coughs) Mr. Varani, there's been questions about screening and there's been questions about Canada repatriating Canadians who want to come home. How would you say the government has been doing? There's still ongoing questions about uh, what we should be doing.
6: Well, we're taking this issue very seriously. We're assisted by the border officials, by the tremendous work being done by Theresa Tam and the individuals at the Public Health Agency of Canada. You've heard Minister Haidu many, many times speaking to the media. The most important message for Canadians is that there's a situation the situation is under control. We are assessing and evaluating every case that presents itself. There had been three cases, one of which has actually already been resolved. There are now two confirmed cases. Other cases are being investigated, but we're urging Canadians to remain calm and understand that we, the situation is under control and that we have the mechanisms in place 15, 6, 16 years after SARS in order to handle this very important situation, very delicate situation. Okay, I just
1: have a quick question before we get to the other two uh, MPs, but a uh, quick question. The, the Minister still didn't answer the question today. and is a. Rec- current one, and that is uh, as to whether when we bring Canadians home, they will face a quarantine. And her answer was, well, the Chinese authorities are not going to be letting sick people get on the plane, but, of course, they can develop symptoms between getting on the plane and getting back here. Do we have any answers as to whether we were quarantining them?
6: So what I can say to you and the viewers is that we've had discussions about having people brought home, Canadian citizens brought home from China, and Minister Champagne had a conversation with his Chinese counterpart just uh, in the last about 12 hours. It was a very positive conversation. We've also already secured a plane to help with with uh, with that evacuation. In terms of the steps that are taken once the people arrive here, I don't have any further information I can provide you with, but we'll do everything we need to to ensure both the people who are leaving are safe but also that Canadians remain safe here.
1: Okay, Randy Holbeck, your um, impression or your, your party's position on how the government has been handling this very sensitive, a very important issue?
5: Well, we've been asking questions that Canadians are asking. We've been looking for uh, ways or answers so that, you know, no different than what they're asking us as they phone us. Um, I think what we're seeing here is it it shows that maybe we haven't done a good enough job uh, having an emergency plan prepared so when something like this happens, we know exactly what to do. It's sitting on the shelf ready to pull off and we implement it. So that might be something that we have to do in the health committee, um, put that together so that we have a game plan in place so we're not waiting for the government to react, you know, over a week or two weeks. Uh, they actually have a game plan they can go to and say, okay, his, this is what we do in this type of scenario, and bang, 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 and everything goes into action. And I think that's the frustration I think a lot of Canadians are looking at right now is they're saying, okay, give us the information, give us the information. And the government's is just trying to figure this out on the fly, and I don't think that's a good way of doing it.
1: Okay. Um, Daniel Blakey, your impression, I know we've spoken with you several times over the course of the week, your impression of how things are as the week comes to an end in terms of coronavirus?
7: Yeah, well, I mean, we thought that uh, out of the gate, uh, Canada was uh, doing a good job in terms of its response, but the situation's been changing quickly and we're concerned that the uh, government response isn't keeping pace with events. And so, I mean, even on the show, Last night, uh, avid CPAC watchers will know that Rob Oliphant was talking about how, you know, they didn't want to just have, you know, what he referred to as a dusty old plan. So Reef today is saying, well, we have a plan in place and we learned lessons from SARS. Yesterday they were saying, well, we can't just use any old plan. We need a new plan for new circumstances. In fact, Rob said there were multiple plans. The problem is is that the government hasn't shared any plan at all with the public. Um, so all we know is that they've secured a plane. Uh, we know that other countries already have done more uh, and, and announced more. Uh, particularly on the issue of uh, quarantine, whether it will happen, where it will happen, when it will happen. And so I think the time has come now for the government to at least share some of its one plan or many plans or whatever it's got, it needs to start putting on the table publicly so that Canadians can see the work.
5: Exactly, and I think oh. it show some action. They actually have to start making some decisions and actually moving forward. You know, we haven't seen any action or any decisions being made, so uh, they've been hinting they're going to do this or hinting they're going to do that. They need to just go and do things and get action going, and, so and way, that's important. Brief, okay. uh, uh,
1: Mr. Vereni, I guess one question that does come uh, up, and I, and I didn't ask you directly, but what is taking so long uh, for getting the Canadians? I mean, we've heard different Snippets of explanation, but nothing official in terms of what's taking so long in terms of getting Canadians on that plane And I know there's been issues with reunification of people who are Canadian citizens uh, versus uh, Permanent residents, but what is taking so long to get them out of there?
6: So the situation on the ground is complex. You have Canadian citizens and permanent residents that are reaching out 274 people have reached out to our consular officials thus far. They're all being provided with consular assistance, which is important in terms of the uh... The criticism are being leveled that we're not being transparent and we're not actually taking action, I think those are actually categorically false. We've deployed extensive personnel, both CBSA and public health agency officials, to the three main airports that are receiving individuals. We have hospitals that have already received individuals and are treating them already successfully thus far. And we are in conversations with the Chinese about removing individuals, and we've already secured a plane. And also, Teresa Tam, our chief medical officer of health for the country, is also part of the consultative body for the WHO, showing the level of expertise okay. that we but- wield. But, but in Wuhan, in, in,
1: uh, in, the, in the actual city, the most affected city, is it a question, I mean, we've heard questions, we've heard suggestions that it's getting cabs to get people to the airport. We've uh, heard questions of it's getting through roadblocks. I mean, what, what, what uh, from what you know, has been the biggest obstacle to getting people on those planes and out of there? Not that that's the only solution of getting people out of there, but...
6: Well, I'm not going to speculate about cabs in Wuhan at this point. What I will say to you, Martin, and to the viewers is that the situation is in flux. The, the issue is an issue of safety, and there are cases that are are, are cropping up, both in Wuhan and around the planet. Uh, We know that there is very high likelihood of more cases. We're treating them appropriately. And also, just add into this conversation, there's been a level of uh, xenophobia and and sometimes overt racism towards the Chinese-Canadian community, which none of us want to see. I was encouraged by a Conservative member today in Question Period making a statement about challenging that kind of racism towards Chinese-Canadians. We don't need to see that. That level of uh, overreaction is not appropriate, and it's not valid, and it's not based on any, any evidence.
1: And I know Mr. Andrew Scheer, the Conservative leader, was uh, in Chinatown, uh, eating in Chinatown today as a a symbolic gesture. Uh, I I heard someone else wanted to weigh in on that. I don't know who it was. Yeah, you
5: know, know, they talk about uh, action. Well, if you look at what's happening today in Europe, the UK has made an agreement. And actually, the plane has landed today uh, with passengers for the UK and I believe Spain also on that same plane. So other countries have been able to get their plans in action and actually getting their citizens back home and working together. Uh, So to see the delay coming out of Canada is frustrating, and it's frustrating for the Canadians who have families in China at this point in time, and they're wondering why we couldn't be on that same level. Uh, So that's the frustration that they are feeling, and I think that's the concern that's here is why somebody else can do it and we can't.
1: Okay, I want to ju- jump in at, uh, on another big issue uh, which came up this week, and that is NAFTA. We mm-hmm. saw the tabling of the implementation legislation. We had a Ways and Means Bill which passed, and we saw the tabling of the implementation legislation. Uh, Arif Arani, the minister, uh, Minister Freeland, the prime minister, your government has expressed uh, a lot of uh, hope that this will pass quickly through Parliament, but the suggestion is it may take a lot longer than you're expecting. What do you expect for the passage of NAFTA?
6: Well, we're looking for parliamentarians to act with the nation's best interests, and I'm pleased to say the Conservatives and NDP have demonstrated that. There's been some questions raised by the Bloc Québécois, sometimes inaccurately, about the impact that this deal will have on the aluminum industry. We've got a vibrant aluminum industry. What we've secured with this deal is a 70% guarantee of a quota of aluminum being used. It must originate from North America. The quota right now is zero, so that's a strong step forward for the aluminum industry. That's why Premier Legault of Quebec has said he's forced forcefully in favor of concluding this deal quickly. We've seen the Mexicans and the Americans ratified. What we need to do is put the economic interests of all Canadians first, and we're seeing that from the two parties that are represented, the other two parties on this panel, which is a good sign. So we're optimistic.
1: Okay, Randy Hoback, um, mm-hmm. your party has more or less said that you are in favor of free trade and you're predisposed to uh, to support this implementation legislation but how do you see this going over the next few weeks
5: you know we're not gonna play silly bugger with it there's no reason to play politics with this file yet we do have some questions and we are looking for information information that we've been asking for for over 51 days that hasn't come forward you know, there's uh, an economic analysis that's still not been completed. Uh, we know there's been an economic analysis done in the SM4 and the dairy sector that is still being held as confidential. You know, so that makes it frustrating. And we did have another briefing offered by the minister this week, and in that briefing we did talk about aluminum and the concerns we have aluminum. And Richard Martel, an MP out of Quebec, out of Chicoutimi, Laforge, brought forward a suggestion, a suggestion about green aluminum and how environmentally friendly our aluminum sector is out of Quebec. And his suggestion actually had the negotiator saying, "You know what? Maybe this is an angle." So this is why we need the information. We can't change the deal. It is what it is. But we can pick apart the weaknesses and try to find solutions for those weaknesses. And we have to address uh, the sectors and the industries that are left behind and find out what the game plan is for them so that they're not left behind, uh, left holding the bag.
1: Okay, Danielle Blakey. The Green Party this week said it will support Kuzma because of the improvements in the environmental protections. Uh, The Conservatives are saying they will eventually support the implementation legislation. Uh, Monsieur Blanchet from the Bloc Québécois says his... Party will support the legislation. Where is the NDP? When will you decide whether or not you're going to be, or whether this deal is worth voting for?
7: Well, I think it's important to recall that the implementing legislation for the deal was only tabled yesterday. Um, so what we've said is that we have an open mind, and that we're looking at it. There are concerns. We've heard some of those concerns already. Uh, the Bloc Québécois certainly has not been the only one to raise concerns about the aluminum industry in uh, Quebec, and also in B.C., where they where they make aluminum as well. Um, and we're not just looking at the... Uh, Dairy sector, although we're concerned, we're concerned about the dairy sector. So we want to understand what the government's real compensation plan going forward will be. They haven't given any details of that. Um, we've raised concerns about the so-called good regulatory practices uh, chapter in NAFTA and what that means for downward pressure on regulating in the public interest. Um, so, th- so there are a lot of concerns. We want to look at it. We're keeping an open mind. I have to say, it is shocking to me. We heard it in question period again today, if I'm not mistaken, or certainly yesterday that you know the government is developing its economic analysis and it hopes to have something that it can release soon That means that the deal was signed without the government having an economic analysis. Now you tell me what Canadian thinks it's a good idea to have a government run out, sign a comprehensive trade deal with two other major continental partners, the only continental partners, uh, without already having done its homework. So there are things that are broken about Canada's trade process. And that's been the other thing that we've been trying to make part of this conversation. We've reached out to the government on it, is how do we have a proper codified trade process so that Canadians can know what to expect in terms of the information they're gonna get to involve Parliament before the negotiations have begun instead of after there's already a signed deal. And we think this is the time to talk about it now because we know that there are other trade negotiations on the table, particularly Canada, UK. So there's an opportunity here for Canada to get it right on on a trade negotiation process that that gives more openness and transparency for Canadians. And we think that has to be part of the conversation going forward as well.
1: Okay, well, to all three of you, Arif Arani and Randy Hoback and Daniel Blakey, I want to thank all three of you for taking the time. It's good to see you all back, and we will continue our discussions over the next few weeks. Good to see you too, Mark. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. It has been a long haul, but tonight the United Kingdom will officially be out of the European Union. After three and a half years, three prime ministers, and countless votes, Brexit will be a reality tonight in Britain. In a minute, we will look at what comes next for Britain, but let's start with Prime Minister Trudeau, who was asked today about what it all might mean for Canada.
2: We have actually been engaged with the United Kingdom over the past few years uh, working on uh, that transition plan to make sure that the very important trade numbers between Canada and the United States are not disrupted at all. Uh, The greatest threat was on uh, a so-called no-deal Brexit. They've avoided that. They are negotiating with uh, with the European Union Uh, so that there will be a more orderly transition and we are very confident uh, that we will minimize any disruptions to investment, to trade, to -to people-to-people ties with the United Kingdom. Well, the Brexit vote is not the end of the process as the consequences
1: of Brexit are still to play themselves out over the next year at least. So what comes next for the 67 million citizens of the United Kingdom and the 446 million remaining residents of the European Union? To look at that, I'm joined by uh, from London, England by Tim Oliver. He is a senior lecturer at the Institute of Diplomacy and International Governance at Loughborough University. Uh, Tim Oliver, thanks for joining us.
8: Good evening, it's good Can, to be with you.
1: Let's start with, I mean, for people who are not there, what will change concretely for Brits yeah. after 11 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time tonight?
8: A lot of things practically won't change in your average day-to-day life for your average Britain. Um, they'll notice subtle changes over time, but technically the United Kingdom is entering a transition period. So it's a member of the European Union in a way, um, in terms of being a member of the single market and the customs union, but it's become a third country like Canada for political reasons. So we're leaving the EU's institutions. So we no longer are EU citizens as of 11 p.m. tonight, UK time, midnight, Brussels time. So there'll be subtle changes politically, but most people won't notice any practical differences in trade in day-to-day movement and free movement and so forth, unless of course, They're an EU citizen living in the UK or a UK citizen living elsewhere in the European Union. They will have had to go through a process of registering and so forth. But for most Britons, not much will change tonight. Okay,
1: so what comes next? A lot of people are talking about business that's still unfinished. What comes next?
8: Okay, Britain is entering a transition period. Um, What that basically means, or what it was supposed to mean, was that this would be a period in which the UK and the EU would transition to a new relationship. All that's been agreed so far is the withdrawal, that the UK would withdraw. And that withdrawal agreement contained things about how much Britain owed, what would happen to UK and EU citizens and the issue of Northern Ireland, which was one of the most complex things. But Boris Johnson, the prime minister, he campaigned and won an election in December on the the campaign slogan of get Brexit done. Well, actually, it's a case of get Brexit started because as of 11 PM tonight, Brexit formally starts with the UK leaving the European Union, But where we go next in the next 11 months because the transition period by agreement is supposed to end in december 2020 no one's too sure where that's going to take us because we've got to negotiate a new relationship that could be any number of things and a lot of people now point towards the canadian eu trade agreement as a possible uh, model by which the uk and the eu will reach agreement but there's a lot of dispute about whether or not there will be sufficient time in the next 11 months to negotiate a very comprehensive trade agreement. Remember, Britain is leaving the most advanced trade union in the world, the most advanced customs and single market in the world, binding together countries. We've never seen a country try and disengage and create more friction in trade rather than less. So this is going to be quite unique. And the time frame is very compact. Boris Johnson has said he will not request an extension um, on that transition period beyond December 2020. A lot of people say, well, he's going to have to um, request something or else it's going to be a very bare bones trade deal at the end of the year, which will benefit the European Union more than it will the UK. or. Britain will crash out without a deal, Mm -hmm. which is what some feared would happen tonight, um, several months ago. But, you know, the no-deal exit is is still there.
1: Okay, that's what I wanted to ask about, because here on this side of the pond, over here on the other side of the Atlantic, uh, we heard so much talk about the perils of a no-deal Brexit. You have Brexit now. You have 11 months to come to a negotiated deal. I want to get in a minute to what's to negotiate, but what happens if you don't come to that negotiated deal at the end of December of this year?
8: Well, first of all, uh, well, the the basic um, fallback position for the UK and the European Union is basic WTO rules. Okay. Um, now, very few countries trade just purely on WTO rules. And remember, for the UK, this isn't just about trade; it's also about fisheries, it's about um, security and defence and foreign policy cooperation. There's a whole host of things have got to be negotiated over the next year. So it's not just even just trade that the UK needs to negotiate with the European Union. There's been lots of debate about how the UK and the EU are going to negotiate those issues either together or one at a time and so forth. That hasn't even been agreed. The negotiations don't even start for a little while yet. If the UK were to fall out in a no-deal scenario, has been mapped out several times, we fall back on a WTO position. That could cause significant disruption to trade and to, sh- um, to the sharing of data and so forth. Yes, the UK and the EU may have temporary measures in place, but The transition period itself is only supposed to be temporary in 11 months. If we were to put another set of temporary measures in for another three months or another six months and so forth, well, we just keep on delaying um, or keep on kind of plastering over these big cracks. Um, Something that will have to be agreed eventually, even if Britain leaves without a deal, eventually some form of deal between the UK and its leading trade partner and its leading and the leading geopolitical actor in Europe, second only to, well, um, except on military matters, where NATO leads, the dominant political um, union in Europe, um, Britain will have to come to some form of relationship, some form of deal with it eventually. So, some deal eventually is is inevitable. But um, so a no deal doesn't even settle the question about what new relationship the UK and the EU will have.
1: Okay, we've heard um, descriptions, and we saw, and we watched the election in which, uh, in which Boris Johnson won a majority, and so that was then clearly paved the way for where you are today, or where you are tonight. Um, but how fraught, I mean, so the, and there was a feeling of relief that even people who didn't want to leave, they said, well, at least now we know there's not going to be this incredible drama you've had for the last three and a half years. There's a relief that now we know where we're going. How fraught are things going to be during this 11 months? Because I'm reading, for example, descriptions of France saying there is no way we are going to let Britain continue to be in a relationship uh, and have an advantage on us, a competitive advantage, by basically throwing away all the regulations that the EU has on, on the environment, on labor, on human rights, and et cetera, et cetera. So how fraught is the next 11 months?
8: To be well within british politics there'll be de- a degree of stability that there wasn't there before because boris johnson now has a, essentially a working majority in the house of commons of okay. 87 mps that's still i mean people might think that's a lot but that still only requires about 44 mps to rebel and some of the hardcore Eurosceptics. there's far more than 44 of them so if he tries to go soft on the european union People that are in a group called the European Research Group are very hardcore Eurosceptics. Some of them believe in a no-deal Brexit, could easily rebel and bring down um, or defeat any kind of proposals that Boris Johnson brings forward. But that side of things provides more stability, at least. We know we're not going to have vote after vote after vote on a knife edge. It's the negotiations between the UK and the EU, however, that are going to be quite fraught. That said, if there was one phrase I'd use to describe what to expect of the new Um, the next phase of Brexit negotiations, it would be, as before, only more so. The EU is almost certainly going to maintain its unity and not allow the UK to try and divide and rule. A lot of people speculated that would break down in the first phase, it didn't. Secondly, the European Union is the bigger partner here. And in trade negotiations, as crude as it sounds, size matters, it matters a lot. And the EU is a ginormous power compared to the UK. The UK is a big economy, there's no denying that, but the EU is much bigger. And the EU, therefore, has weight on its uh, its side. It also has time on its side. For the UK, an exit at the end of December without a deal would be far more harmful for the UK than it would be for the European Union. So the time is on the European Union's um, side. The EU is far more transparent about the negotiations. Um, It's been clearer in the detail. It's better prepared. So you you can already see echoes of what happened before, where the UK was running down the clock, didn't know what it wanted, was uncertain found itself against a trading superpower in the form of the European Union that knew what it wanted, was better prepared and so forth. And I think we're going to see some very similar things happen in the next 11 months. What will be crucial, however, is whether Boris Johnson is in a better position than Theresa May was to try and sell concessions. Um, Theresa May was incredibly weak because of um, her losses in the 2017 general election. Boris Johnson may be in a more comfortable position and may be, may be a better salesman, shall we say, than, than, than Theresa May was in selling concessions and basically defeats for the UK and areas where the UK just has to accept um, that it's not going to win. And he may be able to do that better than Theresa May.
1: OK, a quick question. We only have about a minute left. And this we, we hear a lot about what this has done domestically to UK political... Um, harmony in the sense that we hear about Scotland. A uh, majority of Scots voted against, Boris Johnson voted against Brexit and are angry yeah. and the possibility of another referendum. What's going on there?
8: Um, there is a possibility of another Scottish referendum. I wouldn't rule that out. There's the question of Northern Ireland's unity, um, a unity, a unification with, with Ireland. There's also bigger questions within the remaining United Kingdom between London um, and the South, or mainly London, and the rest of the UK in terms of what England or what the union is about, and the government has said it wants to try and rebalance the economy. I suppose you can see a lot tonight in terms of the type of celebrations or events that are happening. I mean, I've been invited to things um, to mark the event. It's not to celebrate, not to kind of commiserate. People are kind of very diplomatic about this. The mood is very kind of very uneasy. Um, because the country remains divided on remain and leave. It remains divided in many ways, and it's going to be a massive undertaking for this government um, and for British politics to try and bring together some, some form of unity um, in the UK. And that's not really looking possible anytime soon.
1: Tim Oliver, I want to thank you once again. It's been an eye-opener. It always is when we check in with you. Uh, we'll talk again. We'll talk maybe about Canada-UK uh, relations. Yeah. Thanks for speaking with us.
8: Thank you. Good night.
1: Well, it looks as if Donald Trump will survive the impeachment trial in the U.S. Senate. And so is drawing to a close the latest incredibly intense and highly divisive chapter in the Trump presidency. But this hardly represents the end of the divisive politics we've been seeing for the past few years south of the border. To look at it all, the fallout, what the legacy will be of the impeachment trial, and what comes next, I'm joined from Washington by Bobby Allen. He's a reporter for National Public Radio. Thanks for joining us, Bobby Allen. Thanks for having me. Okay, first of all, um, I guess the big question is, in what state will the acquittal of Donald Trump leave the American political scene, the body politic in America?
9: So before this trial even started, acquittal was inevitable. The Republicans in the Senate have a strong majority. They always needed 20 Republicans to jump parties in order to convict and remove the president. Nobody ever thought that was going to happen. So this outcome is something that everyone has been expecting. What we do have now are a number of arguments made on the Senate floor by Trump's lawyers and by the House managers prosecuting Trump that will be politicized, that will be reoccurring in headlines, that will be injected into, um, you know, political campaigns as we head towards November 2020. Um, But, you know, Trump voters, so the base of Trump voters have never believed in this trial. It hasn't changed any minds. The polling here in the U.S. shows that, uh, you know, Trump's most ardent fans didn't like this trial before it started, and they don't like it now. And it really seems like, you know, there's a chance this could backfire on the Democrats.
1: Well, that's what I was going to ask you, because going into this impeachment process, we heard a lot, even amongst, the, for example, the Democratic presidential hopefuls, there was a lot of debate uh, among the Democrats about whether or not to go ahead with this impeachment trial, whether it would help or hurt them politically. What's, what's your hunch? What's your feeling?
9: So that's, that's really hard to say. I think this is going to create a lot of fodder for Democrats in terms of really beating the drum about what they say was an abuse of power, what they say was Trump um, doing something, you know, that he has done many times before, according to Democrats, uh, which is corrupt his office. So Democrats say there there was absolutely no choice here. Our job as the the Congress is to, um, you know, exert our oversight role. We can't wait until November 2020. He has done something that is impeachable, and we must remove him from office. That is what Democrats have always said. And now it appears as if he's going to be acquitted. Uh, Trump will be able to take a victory lap and say, I have complete exoneration. I did nothing wrong. They put me on trial. And guess what? It resulted in something that might sound familiar if you followed the Mueller report. After the Mueller report came out, Trump said, I'm exonerated. I did nothing wrong. So this is really going to embolden Trump's base, And for Democrats, You know, they're going to have some talking points. They're going to be able to sort of emphasize more what they say is Trump's corruption, but I'm not convinced that it's going to give them the electoral momentum that they were hoping it would leading up to november 2020
1: and republicans obviously the republicans in congress they stuck with the president they reject calling uh, you know additional witnesses they voted down impeachment of a trial um so are you saying that they may have made the right political decision because i mean we saw midterms where republicans were dropping uh and democrats were on the up but are you saying that uh, public opinion may be that they will gain from this republicans mm-hmm. will gain from this
9: Yeah, that's that's really hard to say. Um, You know, I'm hearing political strategists talk about how you know maybe this did exact some political damage on Trump. That those swing voters out there in the three Rust Belt states in the U.S. uh, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania that were so critical in the 2016 election, maybe some of those swing voters tuned in to the trial and had a really hard listen at some of the evidence that the House managers presented and thought. You know what? I don't think it's right for a president to ask a foreign government to dig up dirt on a political rival as a way to cheat in the upcoming election. That's Democrats, the heart of their allegation. Um, Are those people on the voters who are on the fence now going to vote against Trump? That's so hard to say. But again, poll after poll is showing his base that is really fired up and really, really devoted to this guy are just more fired up about him now. Um, So in terms of whether some swing voters are, are now going to vote against Trump and vote for the Democrats, we don't know, but polling does not underpin that theory, at least so far.
1: So this is all about that few percentage points of people who are not convinced in one camp or another, and you're saying you don't, we don't really know. The, the jury's still out in terms of the influence. I mean, Donald Trump, uh, as you say, vilified the Democrats. Uh, and he says, I've been, I will be found not guilty of high crimes. And these are just vindictive Democrats. Um, so you're saying, though, that the jury's still out?
9: Yeah, the jury is still out. I mean, one, one thing that we really um, should pay attention to here is, you know, how often Trump is going to bring this up leading up to November. There's a big debate happening now in Washington among Democratic strategists as to whether they should bring it up at all. Um, There's one camp that says this is going to be a liability. It looks like we failed. We weren't able to bring witnesses. It looks like a sham process. It looks like a rigged process in which Trump was was always going to be acquitted. So let's sort of move on. There's another camp in Washington among Democratic strategists saying, no, no, no. Even though we had no witnesses in this trial, it was an opportunity to have Ten plus days of exhibiting to the American people what we see as pure corruption, as as a president who um, is okay with enlisting a foreign government to tilt the election in his favor. And we need to emphasize that. We need to emphasize that he's this chaotic president, that he's this out of hand madman who is willing to bend the Constitution to his will, more interested in himself than the American people. Let's use the sound bites that we have now from the trial. Try to get Democrats in the office. In, in office, but but look, there, it's, it's an active debate now we don't know yet how Democrats and whoever the nominee is will use this trial ahead of the election.
1: I'd like to get your reflections, because as Canadians, as we watch this, we've seen this high drama, we've seen these incredible accusations, we've seen uh, accusations of high tr- crimes, and we'll see an acquittal, uh, and Canadians are shaking their heads at the level of division where it seems, as you're describing, that a good part of the American population believes one thing and a good part of the American population believes another. Uh, how? is this going to be now the trademark of american politics for years to come that you have these two incredibly uh, entrenched camps
9: one thing that democrats says this trial showed is that republicans have an unshakable allegiance to the president they said very early on that they're going to rise or fall with donald trump um, democrats say the republicans were never interested in being an accountability force so of You know, the Congress is supposed to be a check on power. They coordinated hand in glove with the defendant in this trial, which was the president. Um, So Democrats say this process was never fair. It was never gonna give him a fair shake. It was always gonna be rigged against him. And I think, you know, Republicans deep down, when you talk to them privately, some of them are mortified and are horrified by some of Trump's policies, some of his tweets, some of his personal attacks on his opponents but they know that it would be political suicide to cross him. So as long as, as Trump remains their vehicle to get elected, they're gonna stick with him and the country's going to remain quite
1: divided. I'm gonna ask you something, maybe it's an unfair question, especially for someone who you know, uh, is, 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 is watching this day to day, but how healthy is the American body politic these days? <sighs> it's a
9: provocative question and it's a hard one to answer. Um, You know, there's a lot of political scientists who are saying we're more divided than ever. Um, Obviously, Fox News in the U.S. does provide a story every day that is different than what the rest of the media is covering. Um, I actually had an interesting interaction recently that I think will illustrate um, sort of what you're saying. I was outside of the U.S. Senate as the trial was going on, and there was a protester speaking to a counter protester, and they couldn't agree on a single thing. This counter-protester was a Trump backer, and the very basic facts that aren't even in dispute about this Ukraine scandal with Trump, the counter-protester, the Trump supporter, would not concede it. And that, to me, really, really highlights the problem here, that Republicans and Democrats get different media, they consider different facts real, they are on completely different planets. I mean, the political landscape has been turned upside down it's, it's, it's really, really remarkable, and I'm not sure how we're going to move beyond this um, because there is just everyone is, has so dug into their positions, and the Republicans are afraid to buck Trump. Just nobody has the spine to buck Trump because they're afraid they're going to pay the consequences of that come voting time.
1: Well, Bobby Allen, it's an interesting time, no doubt, for you to be there in Washington, and obviously as the whole world watches. I want to thank you very much for spending the time explaining it to us. Thanks a lot. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Well, joining me now to look at Parliament's first week back and the week in federal politics are three members of the Parliamentary Press Gallery. Bob Fife is the Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Globe and Mail. Mia Rabson is Parliamentary Reporter for the Canadian Press. And Alex Ballingale is a political reporter for the Toronto Star. All three of you, thanks for coming in. Thank Thank you. you. Let's start with, um, obviously, there's been so much talk, there's been a lot of concern, and there's been a ton of media coverage uh, of the coronavirus, the novel, novel coronavirus and how it's been handled uh, and how it's progressed and attempts to bring Canadians home. I'm going to ask in the most open form, what uh, what do you make of it? What do you make of how the government's dealing with it? And what's, what strikes you? Start with you, Bob.
0: Well, I think the government has done a pretty good job of uh, dealing with this crisis. The most important thing is keeping Canadians informed. And that's what they've been doing. They've had uh, you know the public health officer and the ministers the Foreign Affairs Minister and the Health Minister have had almost daily briefings, which is the best thing you can possibly do because we're trying to avoid a panic. And if people know what the government is doing and they're telling you what, what the situation is, people can make judgment calls on it. So from my point of view, I think they've done a pretty good job and they've moved quickly to try to get Canadians out of, out of uh, China as well. And they've done it in a way to, in a way to not to try to frighten people.
1: Okay, Mia, because I'm going to maybe do a second round on this and challenge a few things. <laughs> uh, Mia.
3: Well, Canada is in a unique position because, it, I mean, it was 17 years ago, but we still learned some lessons from the SARS crisis in 2003. And you can actually see some of those lessons being applied and how the government is responding and the information that's coming out and some of the, even partly even in China's response. But so Canada learned a lot 17 years ago, and we're finally actually getting a chance to see if we, like how that's actually going to play out in real time. I agree with Bob, the, the information seems to be coming, like very quickly from them anytime there's a case. And I do appreciate that every time you hear from one of the, the experts or the minister, they sort of start it with l- like, let's calm down, wash your hands, you are not at risk. Like they sort of try to start everything with that to try and keep those fears at bay because mm-hmm. people, that, you know, they hear about this virus and they're, they start to really panic without that kind of information. Okay.
1: Alex, what do you make of it?
10: Um, uh, yeah, I agree with all that. I think that it, it's been great that they've been coming out so frequently to talk about it, updates from Dr. Tam. Uh, pretty much every day. Um, I guess the only legitimate question about the response so far is, is maybe, um, or the only fair question, I should say, is maybe uh, what, what, what's taken them so long to get their plan together, mm-hmm. even to, to disclose what they're thinking. Like, they've been, they've been very, uh, they've withheld sort of uh, the information on whether they're going to quarantine Canadians coming back, when, okay. in the, the evacuation plan, I mean so i guess just you know the other countries have been mo- apparently moving faster on that than us and and why
1: is that that's exactly where I was going in the sense that when you listen to the politicians uh, and the people asking harder questions, the one area where there seems to be a lot of unanswered questions and that is how are we getting or what are the plans for getting Canadians back and why is it taking so long? Uh, we've heard sort of snippets. I was trying with an MP uh, from the government. We were hearing snippets about difficulties of getting across the city and having taxis to get Canadians to the airport or locating everyone and all that. But there's, there seems to be a bit of a problem in terms of communicating with regards to getting Canadians out of China. Anyone?
3: I think that there's also something to be said for Canada taking its its time to do this some of the responses may be coming from other countries are political in nature to try and and might ramp up that kind of panic for a virus that at this point is not n- maybe not at that level Canada was partly waiting to see what the World Health Organization was going to say about it it wasn't until yesterday that the WHO decided to, to say that this was a global emergency so a lot of what Canada's decisions are based on is some of the science and co- things recommendations coming from the World Health Organization mm-hmm. which didn't really happen until yesterday
0: yeah and there, there has being no uh, evidence to suggest that we need to quarantine people right now and you start quarantining people you start to frighten people yeah. and that's why one of the things that I think w- we in the media are are and and our role in terms of keeping Canadians informed is that we are learning a lot too yeah like our level has gone up as we've They've had these briefings and weren't able to understand how this disease, how this virus works, how much of a threat it is, how does it incubate, all that sort of stuff. How do you screen for it? I mean, do you screen at the
1: airport? Do you screen? People talk about the real level of screening is at healthcare institutions and sending people home with proper information. yeah.
3: One of the other things they're dealing with now that maybe they didn't have to deal with during SARS, of course, is social media, which has been a problem. Even Twitter was trying to crack down on some of the fake information and that was ramping up the panic, and the government maybe needs to do a little bit bit more to be forceful even on social media to try and shut down some of this false information and it's,
0: I know uh, from doctors that I, I have friends with that uh, this is a problem that's uh, across in the hospitals because yeah. people are going to emergency wards thinking that they may have a problem because they have a, a cough mm-hmm. and it's really backlogging the system so they can actually have to deal with real cases they've got people going mm-hmm. in a bit of a panic So that's an issue that I think they have to try to address so people say, please, you don't have to go to the emergency.
1: Yeah, and this in the midst of flu season, the normal North American flu season. Okay, well, let's change the subject to something very little medical aspect, and that is the, con- the Conservative... Well, well that's a, well, actually a lot of medical. <laughs> uh, uh, the segue, it was a very or faulty... Say mental, se- maybe? It's a faulty <laughs> segue, but the, con- the Conservative Party of Canada, It's this is week after week since Christmas, we've been watching with great interest. This week, I mean, we saw last weekend Peter McKay jump in, but we saw, also saw Aaron McKay, Aaron O'Toole, announce his candidacy, and we saw uh, businessman, uh, Alberta businessman Rick Peterson, announce his candidacy for a second time to run for the leadership, but we also saw people begging off uh, this week, announcing they weren't going to be running. What do you make of it? Uh, start with you, Bob.
0: Well, I'm as a as a journalist, uh, I'm disappointed because I was hoping we were going to have a much more interesting leadership race, and I think mm-hmm. it would actually be better for the Conservative Party itself. I mean, if Rona Ambrose and Pierre Poliev had been in, and mckay and Aaron, and you know, uh, perhaps somebody like uh, Michelle Rempel or something, you would have had a really good contest and people would have an exchange of ideas, and you, you would you'd get a better candidate, I think, at the end result. Mm-hmm. So now we're left really uh, with, between Peter McKay and Aaron O'Toole, and personally, unless Peter McKay really stumbles badly, I can't see how he's going to lose this race, and I know there's some talk amongst more right-wing members of the Conservative Party that they have to get somebody else to run, uh, and the best they've come up with, I think, is John Williamson. Uh, who is
1: a uh, no name mp um, new brunswick mp uh, right. was reelected he was right. defeated and then elected you know
0: he doesn't he's not going to have the kind of credibility that uh, rank-and-file mm-hmm. members would expect from someone to be a leader of the party.
1: Okay. Well, uh, I know Alex follows this, so he's chomping at the bit. But uh, Mia, we'll go to you and then to Alex. Uh, what do you make of it? Uh, what well, stands out to you?
3: It, what stands out to me is that in 20, 2017, it was a race to try and get people to not run because there were so many in the yeah, race. And this yeah. time, it's it's like, oh, well, that person, nope, nope, nope. The, the list of who doesn't want to do it, who's thinking about it and has ruled it out, is longer than the list of people that are actually jumping in. And that says yeah. a lot, maybe, about where the party sits right now. I think also in 2017, 17, there was an idea that maybe this was sort of a temporary leader. There were some who weren't, like Ron Ambrose, like yeah. Peter McKay, who were said they weren't going to get into the race because they didn't necessarily think they were going to have a chance to win yeah. the next election. So maybe there's also that. This time it's maybe more legitimate. Mm-hmm. They think the next election could be more, more uh, winnable than maybe they thought two years ago. It's just, it's, it's very interesting to me that more people don't want to do it than we thought, thought might be. It begs
1: a question, though. Alex, you follow the conservatives and you've been watching this from day one. It begs a question. This is not a party in the wilderness. This is. This is a party with a who actually had more voters for it than the liberal party in the last election this is not a party that's as me compares it to the 2015 uh this is not a party or 2017 this is not a party that's not within striking distance of becoming the next government and yet we have the most notable stories those who are not running uh what do you make of it and will we see maybe any people uh, throw their hat in because there's still a few names out there
10: yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting to watch as that moves forward. I guess there's another few weeks before they can um, get in under the deadline. Um, just going back to that idea of that, like the this idea that this could have been sort of a soul-searching yeah. exercise if, with, if there was more candidates. I think that's it's interesting. It, it, you guys have reported at the Globe that all the major candidates support, for example, a carbon tax, and we're not going to potentially have a have a big discussion in the leadership race about where the Conservatives should go, yeah. if they should take a, a very different tack on climate. I guess there's other things they could do on climate change, um, aside from uh, uh, accept a carbon tax. But uh, yeah, I, I think with fewer candidates, the, the diversity of the discussion is, is, is the main casualty there. And, and uh, Maybe that's a shame. Um, any
1: names that you hear, who, uh, people who I mean, we've been told, for example, that Michelle Rempel still hasn't decided whether or not she's going to throw her hat in the. And names that you've heard breathed about as possible candidates last minute. Um, I,
10: yeah, well, I know that Michelle Rempel, I guess, was was uh, saying the other day that she hasn't closed the door, and, and Williamson are are, are the only yeah. n- names that I, that I've heard, but. Uh
1: We'll the issue, you raise the issue about the carbon tax. So one of the issues that comes up too with a, com, with a conservative leadership race is that you have, you have people pitching to the base to get elected as leader, yeah. but part of what this leadership race is about is electability in the wider general Canadian uh, you, population. Yeah,
0: you've nailed it. I mean, often in leadership campaigns, par, um, people who are competing are trying to, will target their message to the base, but if you want to win in a general election, the Conservative Party has to do a lot better in 905. Yeah. If they don't do 905, they're not going to win. They can, uh, somebody like McKay will obviously, I, I would think, help them in Atlantic Canada. Um, he potentially could pick up seats in the 905, which they absolutely need. But again, the drawback he has is he doesn't speak French very yeah. well. And there are 75 seats in Quebec. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> the Conservatives have to figure out a way, they need they need at least a dozen seats in, in Quebec if and, and they ought to and to do well in, in the nine oh five to beat the Liberals. Mm.
1: But is it a problem inherently that if, if your question is electability and you want to win the next election and yet what you're pitching to the party faithful may not be electable issues like on carbon taxes, for example?
3: It, yeah, technically yes I mean obviously uh, the Conservatives have pitched to their base before and they won government before so yeah. it's not out of the question uh, I think you, you've seen sort of Peter McKay trying in particular trying to, to, to play both sides of that yeah. coin his his opening salvo was all about immigration which and you know bringing in more immigration and then you know maybe a few days later he started to speak to some more things about to, to the base so he's definitely sort of trying to keep his, his leg on both mm-hmm. uh, both sides of that
1: Okay, on that note, something tells me we will be talking about this again. We've got until late June, so (laughs) thanks to all three of you for coming in.
10: No worries. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Well, that's it for another edition of Primetime Politics on CPAC, the cable public affairs channel. I'm Martin Stringer. On behalf of all of us here at CPAC, thanks for watching and have a great weekend.